Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome back to the podcast with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and Eric, after our first Showtime-related road journey to Las Vegas, we're both safe and sound on the East Coast. Uh, I'm certainly safe and sound finally. You as well, I hope. I am. Uh, I got back a little easier than you did. Uh, you had a delayed trip. Uh, not so easy, but certainly, you know, welcome back home now that you're here. Uh, you made it home. How much snow was on the ground in Vermont when you got back there? Uh, there was there was a fair amount, actually. It was actually, even the drive back from the airport after a couple of days was a little bit hairy, I have to admit. So can I assume that you got off the plane, looked around, surveyed the scene and did your best Jimmy Lennon Jr. voice and yelled, <laughs> It's snow time. <laughs> you know, I have to be honest here. And when you first did that joke, <laughs> and I, I, it was one of the very few Raskin jokes that I thought, damn, you know what? That was pretty funny. I wish I thought of that. <laughs> but then I thought about it and I thought the problem is if you live in Vermont or Alaska or any of the other perpetually snowy places, which I constantly find myself. So I realized that if I did that every time there was snow, right. I'd end up in some kind of weird repetitive chant, shuffling down the street, constantly muttering, it's snow time, it's snow time. <laughs> I realized I'd be like um, that episode of Seinfeld, you know, where Jerry and George's old high school teacher is now homeless and he's clutching <laughs> the unreturned <laughs> library book going, can't stand you, can't stand you. Right. That, that would be me. That would be me. <laughs> Yes, the, the, in case anyone's not aware, that I, I recycled a joke there. Uh, I, or to use a Seinfeld phrase, I re-gifted it, although it's not much of a gift. But I, yeah, I, I made the joke on Twitter initially, and Kieran seemed to like it so much I had to make it again on the podcast. Right. But now it's, it's out of my system. We, you know, I was waiting all this time to come over to Showtime and for it to be snowy. Uh, yep. Now I've had the opportunity. I've used it. Uh, I promise. All right, I can't promise anything. I'll probably use it again you know, when it's winter next year. But Exactly, we would have forgotten. <laughs> Very short memories, so there you go. Uh, anyway, we do actually have much serious business to discuss on this podcast, as hard as it may be to believe right now. Um, we uh, have a roundup of some of the major boxing news items, and we also have an interview with Showtime Boxing Analyst and Hall of Famer Steve Farhood. Uh, but first, this Friday, February 1st, Showbox, the new generation, returns with a triple header from Rochester, New York. Uh, that broadcast begins uh, Friday, of course, at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. It is a triple header. There are super featherweights, there are lightweights, and we look at both of those fights uh, later on. But the main event is 10 rounds in the super middleweight division between Ronald Ellis and DeAndre Ware. Yeah, and this is another classically showboxy showbox card for us to preview. Six fighters with 83 wins and one loss between them, uh, and seven draws. That's a lot of draws. Yes. Uh, but uh, as you said, we'll focus primarily on the main event featuring, uh, as you mentioned, super middleweights, Ronald Reckless Ellis against DeAndre Axman, where Ellis is the A-side here. Uh, he's making his fourth appearance on Showbox, uh, but his Showbox record is 1-0-2, two draws in three appearances, which is positively Badu Jack-esque. <laughs> uh, officially, his record is 15-0-2, but uh, although BoxRec and Fight Facts don't have it listed, he says he scored a first-round KO in the Dominican Republic in December, which would make him 16-0-2. Uh, boxing is clearly in the family. His younger brother, Rashidi, is a middleweight prospect promoted by Golden Boy. Uh, but Ronald doesn't have much of an amateur record, uh, or at least not a lengthy one, uh, just 24 amateur bouts. But he did win the 2010 Golden Gloves by beating future Olympian Terrell Gachet in the final. Uh, as for his opponent, DeAndre Ware... 
For a 31-year-old, his pro record is slight uh, at 12-1-2, but he only turned pro at 27. Uh, He played some high school and college football before turning to boxing at age 22, and despite starting in the sport late, competing at five consecutive National Golden Glove finals from 2010 to 2014. Uh, Kieran, I know you have some contacts and sources you're close with on Ronald Ellis' team. Uh, What can you tell us about him beyond that quick biographical sketch, Uh, and what do you know about DeAndre Ware? So Ellis is certainly talented, right? Um, he's also constantly in shape. Uh, the word that I always get is that when he's not fighting, he's absolutely miserable. He's one of these guys who absolutely lives to fight. But, you know, one of the principal reasons he seems to have hit the buffers a little bit uh, over the last couple of years is he's had a series of really unfortunate injuries. He was out for a while with a bad elbow that needed to be cleaned out. And then he had hand injury after hand injury after hand injury, breaking his hands several times. Um, He suffered a fracture in the first of those two draws that he had on Showbox, but he kind of kept the extent of the injury quiet. There wasn't an operation. And then he broke it again more seriously in a subsequent flight fight. Excuse me. He had um, plates and screws put in the hand and then damaged the hand again to the extent that the plates were all messed up and he had to have another surgery. So I don't know if that was because the plates were made out of cigarette paper or something or whether he just hits really hard. I'm not quite sure. Um, he sparred extensively with Canelo uh, during Canelo's camp for Rocky Fielding. And it was because he felt so good there that he elected to go to the Dominican Republic for this phantom fight um, where he beat a guy called Eduardo Mercedes by a first round TKO. Um, I do have in my possession a photo of him with his coach in a ring in a mostly empty stadium with the referee holding his hand and I am in in the air and I am assured that that is the result of his fight in the Dominican Republic, which is not yet on box rec, but his team insists it happened. Um, As for where, uh, so based on his showbox outing against uh, Sam Killick uh, last September, which he took on just a couple weeks notice, he ended up losing that via decision. But based on that, he's a squat, tough, aggressive, active guy who's going to look to put a lot of pressure on Ellis. Uh, He's going to try to get inside. He's going to try to throw short hooks on right hands. As far as I can tell, DeAndre Ware is going to be one of those guys who can be a real nightmare to fight. The kind of guy nobody enjoys fighting. The kind of guy who will make you work every minute of every round. I think think, uh, Ellis is going to have to really work here. But... Here's a little thing that's interesting. It's completely irrelevant, but it's interesting and fun. (laughs) Um, Where's kid brother a few years ago became at the age of about five or six, a YouTube phenomenon. There are videos on YouTube of the little kid throwing hands, working the mitts, showing great hand speed and balance. Um, He went by the name of Pretty Boy Bam Bam, which I think probably tells us who his two favorite fighters were. Um, (laughs) He even wound up on the Ellen show. Um, you know, shadow boxing and, and, and hitting mitts uh, at one stage. But according to DeAndre, I don't know what happened, but he no longer boxes. Hmm. Um, but the footage is, is worth searching YouTube for. But yes, DeAndre Ware may be the active boxer in the family, but he may not yet be the most famous one. <laughs> That's really interesting. I feel like I sort of remember that kid uh, making his way through the sort of the the viral sensation yeah. uh, course of things. He looked uh, pretty good at the time for a yeah. six year old. So. Hmm. All right. You you hit on the, the hand injuries for Ellis. Uh, th- those are certainly a, a big deal. And just in terms of how they've 
influenced his activity level or, or lack thereof. He's basically been fighting no more than twice a year for the last several years. Uh, so that's it's just uh, not the kind of schedule that you want a, a prospect to keep. Although I guess he did fight uh, three times last year if we are counting the Dominican right. Republic fight, which it sounds like at least there's some circumstantial evidence <laughs> suggesting it took place. Um, and looking at, at where... This is his first 10-round bout, uh, although, uh, based on what we've seen, that fight you referenced on Showbox, uh, stamina is not an issue. Uh, This is a guy who can throw a lot of punches and keep on throwing them. Um, But on that note, it's worth pointing out that Ellis, in his last Showbox appearance, uh, the draw against Junior Yunin, he came on stronger in the second half of the fight. That said, it was just a draw, not a win. He needs a win on Showbox. This fight with Ware is a must win if Ellis is going to advance to the next level. But would you say, Kieran, that it's not just must win, but also must score a statement win? Uh, And and does the fact that Ellis has just one win in three showbox outings suggest that maybe he's already at or near his ceiling? Yeah, well, look, do or die is a term I got from his team when I posed that question to him. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like he said, one issue is, He's 29 now, and as you said, apart from last year, you know, three times last year, twice 2017, twice 2016, that's just not enough for a guy at 29 years old with 17 pro fights. Um, there does come a point where potential has to be realized, and and yeah, I think this is a case where he he can't just even squeak by where he has to show that um, the talk about him, about his potential, about his talent, it has to be realized, and. I think it is difficult to know where that ceiling is simply because obviously injuries are part of the game in boxing, but to basically smash your hand to pieces several times, that's a pretty major disadvantage for a professional boxer. And um, it's difficult to know how much of his apparent stalling over the last few years has been a result of reaching a ceiling or just because, you know, he's been getting those injuries. So, you know, it's been a while now since he went past the last one. Um, At some point, he does need to show that they are in the past and that he is ready to push on. Um, You know, it's premature to lower the ceiling on him just yet. But look, if he can't move past those injuries, if he can't, um, you know, prove that he deserves some of the hype that he had earlier on, then then it's time to move on. This really is, I think, he does have to showcase himself. Winning isn't enough here. This is really is he has to prove that he deserves to be an, uh, an A-sider in a main event on Showbox. Yeah, and, and as far as, um, you know, the, the ceiling and how much the injuries uh, factor into that, just from what we've seen, he's clearly a good po- prospect. I haven't seen anything that really jumps off the screen at me. It's like this is an absolute top-tier prospect. But, you know, this is his chance to to prove any doubters wrong. Um, And, you know, without spoiling my prediction, uh, I'll just say that I have a lot of respect for Ware. I think he's a tough out. So if Ellis gets a statement win here, uh, it would force anyone who have questions about his ceiling or, or think it's somewhat limited to, to perhaps reassess it and raise it a bit if he's able to get that statement win against a guy like Ware. But again, got to save some stuff for the prediction That's segment. Right. Uh, for now, let's move along to the co-main. Uh, we have a lightweight eight-rounder pitting Thomas Matisse, who enters with a professional record of 13-0-1 with 10 knockouts. Uh, like Ronald Ellis, he's making his fourth showbox appearance. He's up against uh, Ill Will Madera, 12-0-2 with six knockouts. Matisse is out of Cleveland, Ohio. Madera's from Albany, New York, which 
I thought maybe made him the local kid in this fight, but no, I looked it up. Albany and Rochester are three hours apart. Uh, I need to work on my upstate New York geography. Oh, yeah, I actually had to look that, <laughs> that up too, actually. Yes. Okay, well, a little, little lesson for all the listeners there. <laughs> Albany and Rochester, not that close to each other, but we digress. Uh, Matisse versus Madera. Kieran, uh, what can fans expect from this matchup? So it's from what I can tell, it's, it's really hard to tell. Both guys can be cautious counterpunchers. Both guys can box well. Both guys have shown the ability to crack when they want to. Uh, Matisse is going to be the guy with the faster hands. He's the more classic boxer. He generally likes to work well behind the jab. He shows good ring movement. He likes to move around the ring um, and, and fire his jab out and fire a right hand behind that. Madeira is less flashy by far. He's a lot more workmanlike, kind of puts his head down and, and gets on with it. He has been described as being at times overly tentative. Uh, too reliant on counter-punching. Um, you watch footage of him, and, and in one fight, he can look pretty decent, scoring a nice knockout with a lead left hook. And then on other times, he just doesn't look particularly inspiring. So this could end up being a bit of a cautious contest, two natural counter-punches uh, waiting for each other to make a move here. But, you know, Matisse does have good punching power. Um, but a relative lack of offense and activity nearly cost him in his last two fights, both on Showbox, uh, both of which came against Jora Hamazarian. Um, in the first, which was a co-feature to uh, Devin Haney uh, against Juan Carlos Burgos, um, he was dropped in the second round. He looked as if he was being outworked and outfought for much of the fight, but he got a split decision announced in his favor, and Barry Tompkins immediately described it as possibly the worst decision he'd ever seen. And you have to figure, Barry Tompkins has seen a lot of bad decisions. So that prompted a rematch, uh, and he looked at times a lot more lively, and he showed more ambition, uh, firing his jab and also some good right-hand power punches. But he had to settle for a draw, which this time actually coincided with both Steve's a scorecard and Barry's scorecard. So it'll be interesting to see what develops. This feels to me every inch like a distance fight, um, but the pressure is really on Matisse here. He's, he's in a similar place to Ellis. He's been touted, but he hasn't yet really made the best of his, his showbox appearances at all. Um, and he really does need to prove that he's on that extra level. Uh, he does need to shine here on Friday night. Um, but I think the opener, so if there's a little bit of uncertainty about what we're going to see in the co-main, I get the impression that the opener should be a bit more action-packed. Uh, we have super featherweight action, as Abraham L. Supernova, I love that, uh, puts his undefeated record of 14-0 with 11 KOs on the line against fellow unbeaten prospect Olawashun the Machine Wahab, 16-0 with 10 KOs, originally from Lagos, Nigeria, and now fighting out of Accra, Ghana. Uh, so, Eric, you've actually been ringside for one of Nova's fights. Uh, I believe you were the unofficial ringside scorer for PBC on NBC card for his second pro outing, um, yep. which turned out to be a pretty entertaining affair. So do you recall much of it? And what did you think of Nova at the time? And what are your thoughts on this contest? So, yeah, that, that fight was Nova against Wilfredo Garriga, and it was pretty wild and memorable as six-round swing bouts go. Uh, Nova was, as you said, it was just his second fight. He was 1-0 and the clear A-side in the fight, and he was cruising right along until he got, got dropped late in the second round by a hard left hook. He was fortunate that by the time the count was over and he was up and gloves wiped off and ref ready to 
resume the action. There were only five seconds left on the clock. Um, and then he recovered between rounds and came back to drop Gariga in the third. Uh, but then just when Nova was getting comfortable uh, and the early knockdown that he'd suffered was starting to feel like a fluke, he got badly hurt in the fifth round and spent a lot of time running and moving to survive. Uh, but then he won the sixth and final round to clinch a majority decision. And in rewatching the fight, not only did I notice that the unofficial score did a bang up job, uh, but <laughs> I also noticed the fun in watching some familiar faces at ringside. Uh, our friends, uh, Steve Farhood, uh, who will be on the podcast shortly, uh, he and Gordon Hall were sitting next to each other. And Gordon, in particular, made some great shocked faces when Nova got hurt. <laughs> um, plus, Lou DiBello was ringside, uh, also on that side where the hard cameras could see him. And it's never boring to watch Lou react to an exciting <laughs> fight. <laughs> um, anyway, Nova, in that fight, uh, often held his hands low and left himself wide open for counters. So that's something he's presumably shored up some in posting 12 more wins since then. He's been busy. Uh, five mm. fights in 2017, five fights in 2018. Only one opponent had a losing record. Uh, wow. Yeah, so he's taken on decent opposition. Uh, ha he hasn't had any huge scares like he did against Gariga. But he's had a couple of close fights. Um, the opponent, Wahab, is interesting. We believe he's about to turn 21, uh, so he's very young. He's been to the U.S. many times to train and spar with the likes of Richard Comey, but this is his first time fighting in the U.S. All his other fights have been in either Ghana or Nigeria. Uh, but it's not necessarily a big step, step up for Wahab. This is unusual. He's already fought six scheduled 12-rounders. Four of them went the full 12-round distance, and one ended by knockout in the 12th. So he has some legit wow. experience. So on paper, it's a real test for Nova. Wow, interesting. All right. So uh, you uh, touched on it earlier. It is prediction time. And as a reminder to everyone out there, this year we are keeping score. Uh, getting the correct winner is worth one point. The correct prediction of decision or KO is worth one point. Uh, the correct type of decision, uh, whether it's unanimous or split or majority, is worth a further point. And if it's a KO and you predict not just the KO but the actual round, you score yourself three bonus points. Um, we have yet to agree. We touched on it in Las Vegas, but we have yet to agree on the points awarded for the correct prediction of a draw. We sort mm. of threw out like 10 points or something, didn't we? Or something. I can't remember, but we didn't actually make a final decision on that. But what we do know is that at this early stage, our director of podcasts, Seth Nyman, is on minus 150 points <laughs> after picking Adrian Broner to beat Manny Pacquiao in Las Vegas. He did what we have learned not to do. He listened to the guests during fight week. <laughs> yeah, big mistake. Rookie mistake. We, we, we've made that, that mistake before. Um, so neither of us did that. But whereas I went one for two on the undercard, um, actually, I went 0 for two on the undercard, uh, picking Roche Warren and Badu Jack. Eric went one for two, also picking Jack, but plumping for Warren's conqueror, Nordin Ubali. That means, Eric, that you have an early lead of eight points to six, and you get first pick for Friday's main event. Before my pick, uh, just about the draw, since you brought it up. Um, okay. I'd be fine with making it uh, 10 points if someone wants to pick a draw, but I feel like 10 is still not really enough points to ever make it a smart pick. Um, but I suppose as a Hail Mary, like let's say right. it's, it's December and one of us right. is down by eight points and wants to give it a shot, it could spice things up. Um, we also did something uh, back on Ring Theory where we added an option once a year to use your draw pick on top of your regular pick. So you'd pick a winner, but you could also one time a year 
make a draw prediction in addition to picking a winner for just one fight. So we can discuss off air the best option. Uh, but I guess uh, for, for this week, uh, we should leave draws out of uh, our right. range of predictions until we've uh, settled on a, a system. Guaranteed draw on Friday, then. <laughs> Probably. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, we, we will sort that out maybe in time for the next show. But for now, let's get on to predictions. Um, this is not an easy pick for me. No. Um, I know we said Ellis is the A-side, so he's sort of the natural pick here. But this might be a bad matchup for him. Uh, Ellis is a patient fighter uh, for a guy nicknamed Reckless he really isn't all that reckless. Right. He, he mostly keeps his hands pinned to his ears defensively. He'll stalk and follow a bit and not always throw enough punches. He's fairly flat-footed. He does sit down on his shots well. All in all, he's a straightforward boxer. Doesn't do anything too fancy. And sometimes the way to beat a guy like that is to out-hustle him, outwork him, yep. overwhelm him. And where he's a little less skilled than Ellis, but he could be a real pain in the ass to fight. Um, where's big flaw, though, is his defense. Uh, he, he doesn't move his head at all. He's much too easy to hit, but he fights at a fast pace. He averaged about 85 punches thrown per round on Showbox against uh, Killich, the fight you mentioned. Uh, he's offensive-minded. He uses the jab and a lot of pressure, and when he gets hit, he fires right back. Um, I do view him as the underdog because of his defense, but he's a dangerous underdog, and he could absolutely win rounds by outworking Ellis, and that's why I'm going with the chalk pick. I'm taking Ronald Ellis to win, but I'm taking Ware to win on one scorecard. I think it'll be a close, ah. tough fight. Not quite the statement win for Ellis that we're saying he needs. I like Ellis by split decision. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, Ellis is the class fighter here. Um, he's the more seasoned pro. Uh, even if he doesn't have significantly more fights, he's been at this for much longer than Ware. Um, I think he has... Uh, more skills to be able to draw upon. He's a more classic boxer, obviously. Um, and this is huge for him. He, he Not just in terms of winning this fight, but as we said, but, you know, in getting a big money future. Um, obviously, Ware also wants to get the win. He knows that better opportunities exist for him if he does. But Ellis wants to be in the promised land. He wants to be a legitimate contender. He wants to be on Showtime Championship Boxing. He wants to be fighting for titles. And that all goes away if he doesn't win um it might be at risk as we've talked about if he doesn't win convincingly the thing is where is gonna make him work mm. um if ellis is at all worried about his hands he's gonna have to forget that because he's gonna have to throw a lot of hands and he's gonna have to bounce them off of where's head a lot to keep him off him uh like as we said he this is a guy who's gonna be a nightmare to fight uh ellis is gonna want to try to keep where at range a little bit so that he can use his longer punches but he's going to have to fight his way into that position because Ware's probably going to come at him early and get right in his chest. Um, if he's able to do that, and I think ultimately he should be able to do that, he should win relatively comprehensively. But Ware is a tank. He's never been dropped. Ellis is going to have to work really, really hard. I think he's going to. I think the first part of the fight is going to be difficult for him. But I think probably his greater skills will enable him to find the range that he needs in the second half of the fight. It will be quite close, yet still at the same time reasonably impressive. Whether it'll be impressive enough, I don't know. For, uh, for Ronald Ellis to, to move on to the next stage, but it will be enough for him to get a 
unanimous points decision. All right. Well, enough of us uh, bloviating about Showbox. Is it time to bring on someone who actually knows what he's talking about when it comes to Showbox? It is time to class up this place a little bit and bring in a guest. And uh, our guest this week, uh, he'll be embarrassed by us saying it, but it is true. He is one of the true modern greats of boxing journalism and broadcasting. He's former editor-in-chief of KO Magazine and The Ring, former winner of the Sam Taub Award for Excellence in Broadcast Journalism from the Boxing Writers Association of America. He's an inductee into the International Boxing Hall of Fame and... For good measure, he is just about the only member of the Showtime broadcast team who was not publicly insulted in Las Vegas by Adrian Broner last week. Um, <laughs> Steve Farhood, welcome to the podcast, my friends. Thanks. I'm going to hang up now because I don't see any positives or any upside for me after that introduction, Kieran. So I appreciate you having me on, and we'll catch you next time. Unreal. <laughs> it does have an all downhill from here. Here, so yeah, it's, there's it, nothing good it? that could come out of this. Right. right exactly. <laughs> Um, thank you for the kind words. <laughs> well, we will get to uh, what Kieran mentioned there about Broner and his uh, aggressive approach to the non-Farhood members of the Showtime crew in a moment. But I wanted to start, Steve, with a question about that Hall of Fame induction that Kieran mentioned. Uh, our mutual friend, Nigel Collins, uh, marveled after his induction about how he was just floating on air the whole weekend. It was this one long weekend in his life where he got treated like a celebrity. Everyone wanted his autograph, etc., did you have a similar experience in terms of you knew it was going to be fun, you were looking forward to it, but it exceeded your expectations and surprised you in some ways? Eric, it exceeded my expectations by a mile. It was amazing. It was it was one of the greatest weekends of my life, and to have my wife there was a lot of fun as well. She had been there once before, um, but uh, yeah, it was fantastic. And you know, here, here's one of the reasons, and I think I think Nigel and anybody who's been at the Hall of Fame can understand this. We're in boxing atmospheres a lot. We're at big fights a lot. We're at press conferences. We're among people sometimes. If you, me, and Kieran are together, we talk about boxing. But the Hall of Fame is the only place in existence where every single, if you're a TV guy, every single person has watched you and religiously watched mm -hmm. you. It's not just casual fans. These are the hardcore and they're from all over and they come up from all over. And just to, I, I, I love my weekends there normally. So to, to be the focus of attention, which is not really normally my thing was just fantastic. And, uh, it's a weekend that I will cherish for the rest of my life. One guy who's going to join you one day in the Hall of Fame when he eventually stops fighting is Manny Pacquiao. Um, as we sort of you sure on. about that? I don't know. <laughs> I think I think he's got a really good shot. I think the uh, I'm not so sure I'm voting for him. But I go think, ahead. I think the Broner fight put him over the edge. <laughs> yeah, I was, right. <laughs> I was I was borderline. Um, so Eric and I before that fight in Vegas, Eric and I were debating whether we would end up seeing that night, whether we would see the old Manny Pacquiao or an old Manny Pacquiao. And, and mm. I think we decided he wound up somewhere between the two. Um, I have a two-part question for you based on, you know, after that fight. Um, do you think the Floyd Mayweather rematch happens? And if it doesn't, after what you saw the other night, how do you realistically see Manny Pacquiao faring against the current top welterweights? Well, two great questions. I think the answer to the first is... It's totally up to Floyd. It's his call. Floyd doesn't pass gas unless he's paid $5 million, as we know. <laughs> um, you know, I think Floyd's the ultimate businessman. And for him, you know, the, the stakes are a little higher now for him than they were, let's say, when he first fought Manny or, you know, more recently, like when he fought Berto or whatever. I, I think he has to look at it as a, as a, 
you know, risk reward situation, which is what a businessman would do. And how much is he going to get paid? How much less is he going to get paid than he got the first time? Because obviously it's not going to do the same amount of buys, pay-per-view buys. And how much of a threat is Manny? And, and, you know, he was ringside, obviously. And I thought when Jim Gray asked him to make a facial expression, yes or no, to Manny's challenge, I thought he played it brilliantly, you know, like a true poker player. So it's up to Floyd. I mean, you know, as time goes on, is he so desperate for both money and attention that he would take a fight no matter what? You know, even if it's only, let's say, only $80 million or whatever the number is. Or is he in a position now where, because it's in his rearview mirror and it's getting more distant and more distant, that he wouldn't come back? So mm-hmm. it's really, I think, totally up to Floyd. But Manny is in a more interesting position because now that he's with PBC, there are possibilities of fights that didn't exist a year or two ago. And you, I haven't seen the Thurman fight because obviously I was working last night. I'll watch it tonight. But you have to think about how he would fare against Garcia, Porter, Thurman, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I always had the impression that that Freddie Roach was never big on, on Crawford fighting yeah. Pacquiao, um, which was the exact fight Crawford needed, of course. You know, there's, there's, everybody wants to fight Manny. There's no, there's no bigger name outside of Floyd. So the fights will be there for him. Which ones he chooses to take, I think, will all be determined by Floyd's initial reaction to all of this. Before I ask uh, you the next question, Steve, I need to ask Kieran whether he wants to take back when he introduced you saying that he, this was going to class up the podcast now that we know you that you're going to be making <laughs> fart jokes. That's still uh, well, far classier than anything we're going to say before this podcast is over. Well, I, I'm going to try to be more like Broner because he keeps getting rewarded <laughs> for his behavior. <laughs> you know, it's a, I have a new role model. There you go. And that's a perfect segue because I want to ask you about Adrian Broner. Um, as uh, he is, as Jim Gray uh, famously pointed out, uh, now 3-3-1 three, three and one in his last seven fights, uh, regardless of how well he might do if he were fighting broadcasters who are twice his age. Um, Broner consistently falls short in his biggest matchups, and he was unimpressive on January 19th on the biggest stage he's ever been granted. Have we finally seen the last of Broner at this level? At this level, I think we have, yeah. I mean, you know, can he get another big fight? Sure. But he's going to be the B-side. Mm-hmm. Now, you could say he was the B-side against Manny Pacquiao. Obviously, he was. But it was a pay-per-view fight in which he was paid seven figures. Right. I, I think those days probably would be over. And and what you really have to ask, and I'm not being being cute here or or, or being trying to be you know uh, mean to Broner, but you do have to ask, can he get his stuff together outside the ring? Because that's really a bigger question. Yeah. You know, he could fight another five to ten years if he if he stays out of trouble. But when you look at his his history, it's kind of amazing he's not in jail already. Mm. And what will happen now that he lost this big fight, you know, outside the ring? It's a fair question only because of his history. So that, that to me, that's the bigger question. But if he continues to fight, yeah, he's going to be the B-side. Would he accept the money to be the B-side for a, you know, for an up-and-comer or, or for a Victor Ortiz fight, which would be crazy and wild? Or, or you know, I don't know, a Derek Ennis fight? I, I don't know. The money obviously wouldn't be there, although there will be offers to him. But um, So that's really the question is where he's at. Both, both in terms of expectations and, and, and behavior outside the ring. You're doing a really good job of queuing up the next question each time here. You, th- you did that again here because I sort of wanted to, you know, you mentioned about Bronner outside the ring. And uh, 
And, and I think it sort of raises this broader question. Look, I recognize, obviously, we all recognize that very few boxers are saints or even close to it. Um, I think right. if, we only, if we only wanted to show guys who we were pretty sure had never done anything bad, the entire sport would be archival footage of Chris Bird shadow boxing. But, um, <laughs> well put. Um, well but, put. But with that, what kind of responsibility do you think we, and I don't just mean us three, I don't mean Showtime, I mean like the boxing business community, if you will, um, have in regard to who we put in the spotlight. Like you mentioned, Broner has legal issues, um, some of them quite serious. He's got two serious sexual misconduct charges to face. Um, mm -hmm. Next week, we've got Sergei Kovalev fighting on ESPN, despite the fact that news has emerged he's been charged with punching a woman in the face, which he apparently right. did before his last fight, which was on HBO. So acknowledging that neither man has even been tried for any of these alleged offenses. And Marcus Brown was just on the picture. And Marcus Brown. Right. Issues as well. Yeah. Right. I mean, how do you feel we in boxing, we don't have a league to address these kind of things. Right. How should we approach fighters with this kind of baggage or even just alleged baggage? Well, it's, it's a question I gave a lot of thought to, and I give a lot of thought to every time I think of Adrian Broner. Um, first of all, people like us have to suspend our moral beliefs <laughs> to exist in boxing. I think you just said it yourself regarding, you know, Chris Bird and no one else. But we have to suspend our moral beliefs. But is there a limit to how far we would go to do that? Well, you know what? There probably isn't in boxing as a whole to how, how much they would suspend their beliefs. Um, it's, it's really not a boxing problem. It's a societal problem. It just seems to me like, and, and maybe I'm just turning into an old guy, but it seems to me that in general, celebrities are rewarded for bad behavior in general. And that can go into music and that can go into athletics and that can go into boxing. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's the problem. I mean, Adrian Broner has behaved badly both in and out of the ring, boxing related and, and, and outside the ring. And he keeps getting handed, you know, big paychecks. So where, where is the, where is the motivation for him to stop? Yeah. You know, and I, and I get why he's getting the big paychecks. He's a big name. And he gets big ratings. And again, that's a societal issue. The fact that people find this guy so interesting because it's not his boxing. He's been, he's been an underachiever. I think we'd all agree, yeah. you know, for a guy who's won titles in four weight classes, he's, he might be one of the one or two that don't make the hall of fame. Right. So, um, it, it's really a bigger issue, I think, than just boxing, but it's something mm -hmm. I think we all think about. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, on a lighter note, but still sort of on that same subject of boxers with troubling characteristics, do you think, Steve, that there's a right and wrong way to respond when boxers verbally attack journalists? Uh, for example, Al Bernstein tried to keep it light when Broner went off on mm -hmm. him. Uh, Jim Gray abruptly ended the interview. Larry Merchant used to get more aggressive sometimes. Uh, which, <laughs> mm -hmm. way, which way would you have gone in, in those situations? And have you ever been in a situation like that, you know, on li live TV with a fighter calling you names or, or telling you, we've all heard this one, telling you that your opinion doesn't matter because you never boxed, that sort of thing? Oh, I've heard that one so many times. Right. It's yeah. funny. And, and I'm guessing you guys have as yeah. well. Because What do you know about boxing? Who would ever hit you? Well, you know, my answer to that is always the same thing. You know, the best food critics are not chefs. Right. And the best movie reviewers are, aren't Steven Spielberg. So, you right. know, uh, it's, a, it's actually a silly thing. Boxing is, is particularly vulnerable in that area because you can't name me one college or pro basketball or pro football or baseball analyst who's not either, either a former manager or a former player. In right. boxing, look how many we have. We have Al Bernstein, we have Max Kellerman, we have Rich Morata, we have Steve Farhood, we have, you know, it, it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
Yeah, I think the way to respond to it is up to the individual. I probably would have responded had I been Al Bernstein the way Al responded. Mm-hmm. Do you really want to get in, in, down and dirty in the muck with, with Adrian Broner? I, I don't think that's a fight you can win. And Al is, you know, Al knows what his place is in boxing. Al is, yeah. you know, universally regarded as, as, as a saint. I mean, the, yeah. the guy is loved everywhere. So I think he knew that. I also think he wasn't totally surprised by what happened because between us and your listeners of your broadcast, there have been some issues in the past with Broner at Showtime fighter meetings. Okay. This is not the first time this kind of thing has happened. So I don't think he was surprised, and I think he handled it very well. And as a result, you know, social media and the newspapers and everything else, you know, all sided with Al, not, not surprisingly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's look ahead to some upcoming Showtime broadcasts. So on February 9th, Carson, California, uh, Javante Davis takes on Abner Mares. Um Davis is another guy. He's got a ton of talent, but he's another one, isn't he, about who some doubts have been raised about his application. Um, we had him on the podcast in Vegas, and he said to us that he's sort of seen the light, and he's really dedicated, and he's very focused, and he's determined to make the most of his talent. Do you buy that? Um, and do you think that even in this relatively early stage of his career that He's already approaching almost must-win territory in some of these fights. Well, you know, when you're young, you can get away with a lot. And, mm. I, and I mean that both in terms of what you do to yourself, how you behave. Mm. You know, there seems to be a longer leash. And, you know, the, you, you just hope the maturity kicks in. And the reason it's so important with him is the obvious talent level. Mm. And, and, and you want to see him in big fights. He hasn't been in big fights. Now, this will be the biggest fight of his career because Maris is, is a big name. He should beat him, obviously. He's the bigger guy. Uh, maybe even beat him convincingly. But it's frustrating to see someone at this point in his career where he hasn't achieved, even what Adrian Broner has achieved for that matter yet, with all the right. titles Broner won. Um, you want to see him move on. Now, he's training back in Baltimore with Calvin Ford as opposed to Kevin Cunningham, who trained him for his last fight. So that's an interesting adjustment he's made. Is that good or bad? I, I don't know. You'd have to be, you know, he'd have to be in Baltimore living and watching him every day to see if that's a good or a bad thing. But this fight is very important. And I, I do think, uh, Kieran, that, that, you know, he, he really does need to look good here um, because, because it's the biggest fight of his life and he's headlining for the first time, etc. And there have been a lot of big fights ahead for him at 130 or 135. So I'd love to see him with Tevin Farmer. You know, kind of mm. a purist fight, maybe, but mm. and it's probably not going to get made since Farmer's now disowned. But um, those those kind of fights are out there at thirty or thirty five for him. And you you alluded to the the fact there that Davis is viewed as the favorite in this fight, uh, but Mara's meanwhile is obviously the most experienced and accomplished opponent that he's faced. Uh, but Morris is thirty three. His glory days were at bantamweight and featherweight. He was knocked out in one round by Johnny Gonzalez at featherweight way back in 2013 and has arguably not quite risen to the same height since. And and now he's facing a guy who's likely to be substantially more than 130 pounds on fight night. So looking at it from Morris's perspective, is this, does this look like probably too much for him at this stage? Well, I'd put it this way. Morris is most likely going to have to change his style a little bit. He's going to have to be more of a boxer in this fight. Now, can he keep Davis off him? You know, the odds are going to say no. But if he stands in there and, and tries to trade, he's not trading with Leo Santa Cruz. He's trading with Tank Davis, a big difference in right. size and, and in power. So, And just one other quick point, if I may make it, about, about Davis. We're talking about his behavior. You know, one thing we have to realize is that the most dominant and influential fighter of the past 20 to 30 years is Floyd Mayweather. Yep. And the influence he's had on young fighters. We talk yep. about Broner's behavior. We talk about Davis's behavior. It's good and bad. The bad is, is Floyd stressed money. 
above all, above everything else. If you if that's your only motivation as a good young fighter, it's probably not the best thing. Of course, it worked for Floyd because he was so good. The other thing, the the the, the thing that gets overlooked is the reason Floyd was so good for so long was his work ethic. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets lost a little bit. And a lot of these fighters, they want the, the bling and they want where Floyd got, but they don't understand what Floyd paid, you know, the price he paid to get there. So whether, whether that applies to Broner and Davis, I don't know, but it's certainly something to think about because Floyd has influenced, just like Ali did and just like Leonard did and De La Hoya, Floyd's influenced a lot of young fighters yeah. and yeah. continues to do so. Yeah. He looked at Brinkside. He looked like he was still uh, in fighting shape uh, at 42. Uh, so I mean, Floyd's constantly in pretty good shape. So yeah, he, he he's. I, I'm guessing he still works out, or or he yeah. doesn't eat one or the other because he he looks <laughs> exactly. like he's ready to go. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So before the uh, February 9th fight uh, this Friday, February 1st, you'll be ringside in Rochester, New York, for the second showbox of the year and hopefully the first to feature fully functioning ring ropes from first bell to last <laughs> yeah. good work you guys by the way we complimented barry on that the other the other week um oh okay 13 um, minutes by yeah. tv standards that's forever <laughs> yeah. yeah good work uh, so in the main event um ronald ellis takes on deandre ware and and obviously look ellis clearly has plenty of talent but it just hasn't quite come together for him it just his showbox appearances just haven't quite panned out um mm-hmm. If he has the potential to take his career to the next level, is Friday the day when he really needs to prove conclusively that he has it in him? Yes, I agree 100%. He's 1-0-2 in his three fights on Showbox. Um, the thing is, if, if you use ex- injuries for an excuse, he has a lot of excuses. Because yeah. he's had tons of injuries. Yeah. You know, shoulder, this, that. I mean, every fight, hands. He's broken his hand twice, I believe, in the last like three fights. So there have been issues with him. And, and he is a talented guy. I'm not so sure he's the most talented Ellis, because his brother, Rashidi, right. is, is excellent. Um, but yes, against DeAndre Ware, who's a good fighter who fought well in losing on his one showbox appearance, I think Ellis has to shine. And the same can be said for Thomas Matisse, a late addition to the show, who now is past that whole thing with Hamazarian and the bad decision and then the rematch draw. He also has to show. You know, you only get so many chances. And I think the, the, the bar on Showtime has been raised by, by um, Boots Ennis and, and Haney. And you look at those guys and you go, those are prospects, man. Those are right. high prospects. These, these are right. future champions. So everybody else has to rise to, to try to reach that level. And we'll yeah. see if uh, Ellis and Matisse can do that. All right. Well, ending here with a general show box question. Uh, you have a fairly encyclopedic boxing brain, uh, as Barry. Oh, Tompkins boy, I'm in trouble now. Out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm letting you stall to call up BoxRec uh, while I okay. while I ask one. Uh, but Barry Tompkins pointed that out when he was on the podcast a, a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, but after so many show box shows, so many eight and zero or ten and one fighters passing through your life for four, six, or eight rounds at a time. Does it get hard to keep them straight? I, I would imagine it must become something of a blur at a certain point. You know, for the most part, the guys who win, you remember them. The guys who lose, uh, there are a lot of 12-0 and 0 guys who weren't very good. You know, I mean, on a show for 20 years, you're going to have a lot of mix of, of guys. And those guys are forgettable. But the, the ones who win, and, and especially the ones who, who appear more than once on the show, and that's one of the best things about the show, I think, is that we have repeat customers. Right. Um you tend to remember them. I, I, I have a pretty good memory. You know, I think it would be a lot harder if we were like USA Tuesday Night Fights where we did 40-something shows a year. But, you know, Showbox is right. 10, 12 shows a year. It's been that way for a while now. So it's not as hard, I think, as you think 
to uh, to to remember who's fighting, and just don't ask me who's fighting this week because I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, not only, uh, you know, is, is the boxing brain uh, as sharp as, as Barry Tompkins uh, said it was, uh, but you did this podcast interview while jet lagged. And I don't think anyone could tell you were uh, sharp and enlightening as always, Steve. So, oh, uh, well, I appreciate that. It was fun to do. Always fun to talk to you guys. Yeah. Thanks so much. And for welcome to the family, by yeah. the way. I'm, uh, Thank you. It's great to I'm be here. I'm very happy you guys, uh, you guys are uh, here and, and, uh, I'm sure we'll we'll be talking, uh, you know, plenty in the future. We will. Thank Certainly. you very much, Steve. Thanks a lot, Steve. All right, guys. Take care. You Bye-bye. too. Okay, our thanks again to the great Steve Farhood. Uh, before we go, we have plenty of boxing news to talk about. Uh, it seems there are no slow weekends in boxing anymore. Uh, right. Let's begin with this past Saturday night in Brooklyn. Keith Thurman returning after nearly two years out with injuries to outpoint a game Josecito Lopez via majority decision. Kieran, what did you think of his performance? Were you surprised by any of the scores? And what do you think is up next for Thurman? So I was a bit surprised by the 113-113 score. Um, Actually, I was quite surprised by that. Um, And granted, I was watching on TV. And for all that we like to all insist that we're not affected by commentary or the unofficial scoring when we watch on TV, we are. Uh, um, It's a different dynamic completely to when you're sitting ringside. Um, That said, I think thought Thurman was doing a good job of basically controlling the fight through six, had a just a desperate, desperate seventh and a pretty rocky eighth. But I thought after that, although Lopez, you know, kept pushing and was far more effective down the stretch than he was in the first half, I still thought that Thurman, you know, got his legs back under him. And even though he was getting cracked here and there, he, he was in reasonable control. He was landing, I thought, the crisper shots. Um, you know, his movement was keeping keeping him out of a lot of trouble, even though it made it look like maybe he was in more trouble than he was. But I did think by round nine, he had more or less righted the ship. Um, that said, some of those rounds in the back half of the fight were close, and I can definitely see if folks uh, had it as a reasonably close score. Um, as a matter of course, I just think it's a good thing in life to agree with Steve Weisfeld, yeah. um, <laughs> who had it 115-111. Um, so I think that's probably eight rounds to four with a 10 round, 10, eight round a piece. But I could also see Tom Shrek's score of 17-9. Uh, but look, Lopez is a tough customer. He's a dangerous but beatable foe for a comebacking champion. He's a legitimate yardstick. Um, I think given that he hadn't thrown a punch in anger for almost two years, I thought Thurman came through it fine. Um, yeah, I'd be grading it differently if he'd been boxing regularly over the last couple of years. But, you know, that's not where he is. It takes a while to, to get yourself back in the groove. Um, I, I do think one thing that it highlighted that that was a case before he was out is that, you know, the power that he displayed earlier in his career at 140, it's just not there for him at, right. at, at the elite level at welterweight. And it hasn't been. so. And so he does need to rely on boxing and moving more. Um, it did look like he was tired down the stretch, but that's understandable again. Uh, I thought he came through this reasonably well he he didn't necessarily excel but it was a tough comeback after a long time out i think he'll probably he'll probably be feeling okay with that as a tough past test as for what's next hey look um we talked just a week ago about manny pacquiao and, and we talked with steve farhood about a manny pacquiao and possible welterweight opponents maybe i don't I still don't think any of the good welterweights are good matchups for Manny Pacquiao, but maybe if you're one of Manny's people, you think maybe Keith Thurman's the rustier, the more vulnerable, the not quite at his peak 
yet that if we had to go for any of those, maybe Thurman's the guy to go for. Possibly, would I make him maybe the slight favorite uh, in the non-Floyd Mayweather division out of all those guys for Manny to try and fight? Maybe. I don't know that Manny would beat him, but maybe he would look at it and go, maybe that's the guy for me to fight. I, I don't know. You just set the record for most times saying maybe or possibly in like a 12-second span. <laughs> oh, I can beat that. <laughs> All right. Uh, the, the bar is established, though, now. Uh, okay. So uh, if, if you can beat it, let's let's see you do it. But, um, you know, I, I'm definitely uh, going to be a little harder on this performance okay. by Thurman th- than you were, even if that 113-113 score was way off base. To me, this fight was way too close for any Keith Thurman fans to, to feel real good about uh, what they saw. Um, I'm even going to go ahead and, and take a, a little victory lap, just a little one, uh, as the guy who's been venting for the last couple of years that people have Thurman too high on their pound-for-pound pound list. He never passed that eye test for me. I always thought he was at best a, a spot or two outside the top 10. I took it as meaningful that against Danny Garcia and Sean Porter, two guys who are not quite top 10 pound for pounders. He was just barely eking out wins. Some people had Thurman in like their top five. And I thought that was crazy. Wow. Yeah. To me, he was always a clear level below the likes of Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford talent wise, even if the resume for Thurman stacks up adequately. Um, now that said, this was his first fight back after a long layoff and every fighter has a scare from time to time. But it's not like he was rusty at the start of the fight. He boxed very right. well the first few rounds. And I, I don't want to diminish Lopez. Josecito Lopez is a good fighter, rarely an easy out. But this was supposed to be a safe comeback fight, and it almost ended in disaster. Uh, that, that seventh round was, you know, just barely getting through it, that, that sort of territory. Thurman was tough. He hung in there and did get through it. Uh, and he scored the knockdown early, and, and he certainly deserved the victory. But... Thurman is also a guy who now has established a bit of a history of of fading in the second half of fights um, and who was really badly hurt by this B-level opponent. So I'm going to do the Denny Green this week uh, and say that uh, he is who I thought he was, a very good fighter, not a pound-for-pounder, not on the Spence Crawford level, and as you alluded to, and as Steve said, suddenly a little more interesting for Manny Pacquiao. Uh, Maybe the result of that fight isn't as sure a thing as we thought when we were discussing it last yeah. week. I mean, we don't think Manny would struggle like this with Josecito Lopez, do we? Well, indeed. Probably not. So yeah. to get back to the pound for pound thing, if you had Thurman at number nine or number 10 pound for pound prior to this, prior to his layoff, that's fine. That's reasonable. If you did have him at four or five or six, uh, I expect your apology in my DMs. <laughs> uh, and, and by the way, uh, two quick side notes about this Fox broadcast. One, Shout out to referee Steve Willis and his wonderful faces stealing Always. the show as Always. usual. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, and two, how about Lennox Lewis making the just for men hair and beard coloring work for him? Uh, if, if I didn't know he'd gone gray, I'd believe it was natural. <laughs> Looks good on him and, and takes a good five or ten years off. And by the way, I'm allowed to comment on this subject because I used a little just for men in my 20s when I first started going gray. Uh, so it's, it's not considered insensitive for me to weigh in here. I have permission due to my personal struggle. I, and not that we want to go too far on this detail, but it might be a little bit too late for that. Um, I, I'm at the stage where I kind of wish that I 
thought about using it before it all went horribly gray, <laughs> but it just seemed to happen from about March to June one year that I went mm. from brown to entirely gray. And well, there it is. But, <laughs> and also, by the way, I was happy to hear Joe Goosen, uh, not for the first time, I think it's the second time now right. that he's been a uh, color commentator. He's great. Yes. Um, I'm always, I just can't get enough Joe Goosen in boxing and uh, really happy to, to hear him contributing there. Agree. Uh, so also on Saturday night in Houston, Texas, Jaime Munguia uh, remained undefeated, battering Takeshi Inoue for 12 rounds, but winning a very wide unanimous decision that didn't actually necessarily reflect at all how hard Inoue pushed him for the duration of the contest. Um, so were you impressed with Munguia, Eric? And, and did the fight tell us any more about what this young man's ceiling might be? Well, before I get to my feelings on Munguia, Let's say a little something about the ridiculous toughness of Inoue, yeah. uh, chin of the year right there. Uh, how he stayed on his feet at the end of round 10, I will never know. Uh, so, yeah, I was impressed with Munguia. Thought he displayed great offense, um, boxed and moved well in spots, but mostly dug in and fired hard at head and body and was his usual exciting self. Uh, he got hit flush maybe a little more than you'd like to see. But it's 12 tough rounds with a guy who never stops coming. You're going to take some punches. So very good win for Munguia. Keeps his upward trajectory and momentum going. I think it suggests his ceiling is what we thought. A very mm -hmm. good fighter. Probably not a future pound-for-pounder. But no reason not to think that he'll be one of the top TV fighters and a real attraction oh. for the next five or ten years. He remains yeah. very high on the must-see list. Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems he's he's constitutionally incapable of being in a boring fight, uh, <laughs> yeah. even one that he wins. Um, you know, I think obviously, you know, talking about his ceiling, I think ultimately he's still and he showed some interesting touches there. I thought like in about the eighth or ninth round where he was doing a good job of moving backward to give himself some more room to punch. You know, he wasn't just coming forward and, and flinging punches, but um It'll be interesting. There's going to come a point where he can't make 154 anymore, and then it's going to be harder to physically impose himself on opponents, which is still a very large part of his game, isn't it? Just being that big, strong guy, mm -hmm. uh, even though he's adding adding more to it. Uh, so by the time that happens, he is going to need to you know, improve his, his all-around skill set and especially his defense. But it does seem pretty clear that Robert Alcazar, who's good at this, is trying to work with him on, on that. Um, uh, but, you know, look, um, whatever happens, I don't have necessarily, I'm not even burdening myself with expectations for Jaime Munguia. I'm just on the train. I have a ticket. <laughs> I don't know where the ride is going or how long it's going to be, but it's fun and, and I'm just tagging along. Excellent attitude. Um, turning our attention to fights that are coming up on February 2nd on ESPN Plus. Uh, I believe some of the undercard fights are on regular ESPN, uh, including uh, Oscar Valdez is part of that part of the show. But at least the main event is on the pay service. Uh, Sergey Kovalev looks for revenge against a later Alvarez who knocked him out last summer in Atlantic City. Kieran, you and I were both ringside for that first fight. And in our post-fight podcast, you said Kovalev was, and I quote... <laughs> D-U-N, done. Uh, leaving aside the question of uh, whether, uh, as we already discussed with Steve Farhood, uh, Kovalev should be fighting at all, given his uh, circumstances outside the ring, uh, are you sticking by that? Uh, do you expect to see a similar result to the first time? So not for the first time in my life, I may have overstated a case in the heat <laughs> of the moment, such as my desire for a hashtag hot take. Um, 
But also, I, I, I look, Sergei was leading on the scorecards at the time of the stoppage. He had overcome a slow start. But Alvarez did have a notable hand speed advantage throughout. And the knockout came, and I, we didn't know this at the time, ringside, but watching the broadcast afterwards, it came after trainer Mark Ramsey said to him between rounds, right before that round, to start throwing those, those big right hands. Mm. Um, so it, that knockout didn't exactly came, come out of nowhere the way that it maybe seemed in real time that it did. Um, we've talked a couple times already on this podcast about must-win fights. This is a must-win fight. Yeah. Um, if Sergei Kovalev loses this, I, I don't see any way back uh, at all. Um, and here's the thing with Sergei. I've probably spoken to him more than any other boxer not named Gennady Golovkin over the last five years. And um, I've always enjoyed our interactions. I, I like him despite everything. Um, you know, but there is always the sense of this cloud of chaos looming just behind him or just over him you know there was the mm. long ongoing tension with john david jackson there was this sort of sense of heaviness and tension he brought into the andre ward rematch there was the fact that when he lost the ward in the rematch he didn't just drink he drank a lot um he he drove his car off the road and almost killed himself and and even when he tries to recover it's not it, it's it swings hard in the other direction. He doesn't just look to like calm himself down or drink some herbal tea or do yoga or something. He went to a Greek monastery for heaven's sake. Um, and it, it's always extremes. And then he's always insisting before a fight that training went great. And then after a fight, he's always saying that training was terrible. Um, and there's an air of menace about him that he carries as well. I've I've always maintained that. If he weren't a professional boxer, his job would entail hurting people somehow. That was <laughs> right. one way or the other. That's what Sergei Kovalev was going to do. So he's certainly DUN done if he loses this. And and I I just always have a feeling that whatever happens with Sergei Kovalev, I don't necessarily see a scenario where Kovalev is ever going to be happily retired with his feet up in slippers in front of a roaring fire. Let me put it this way. I think, one way or the other, when all is said and done, there's going to be a Raskin oral history podcast. <laughs> nice pre-plug for something that may right? or may not happen right. in the next several years. Right. I like that. Right. Yeah. Right. And I have avoided completely the question about whether I think... I do. I, I kind of am leaning to Alvarez getting getting a, a win in the rematch as well. Um, uh, I, yeah, I do kind of think that, that's, that Alvarez might even stop him again, actually. Hmm. Well, you'll be interested to learn that the uh, legal online sports books are also leaning toward Alvarez. They have him as a minus 124 favorite. So very slight favorite Kovalev as a plus 106 underdog uh, at last uh, time I checked. That, that feels fair. You know, the guy who scored the upset knockout the first time probably should be favored, especially given Kovalev's age. But yeah, that question of is he D-U-N done or D-O-N-E done, uh, whichever spelling you prefer. Who spells it like that? <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking about the fact that we said Chocolatito Gonzalez was done after his brutal knockout loss to Sri Saket Sorung Visay in their rematch. And then he came back and scored a solid knockout win. Uh, so while he's probably done at a certain level, he's not done done. Um, so I'm inclined to say Kovalev is not done done. But I'm inclined to guess he is done at the top level. And so I too do view him as the underdog here. And if he gets knocked out again, 
it might be time to think about, you know, if not kicking his feet up in slippers in front of the fire, uh, at least finding something else to do and hopefully uh, being able to to count his money, which he's accumulated a, a fair amount of. But, you know, there's no need to jump to that yet. We could have a, a thriller on our hands in this rematch yep. with with Alvarez. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, there is an exciting co-main event. Uh, I think it's the co-main on the Kovalev card as consensus 2018 prospect of the year, Teofimo Lopez. He of the highlight reel knockouts, in-ring backflips and Fortnite dances. <laughs> um, he really steps it up another notch here, taking on a former title challenger, Diego Magdaleno. And I think he's only Teofimo's 12th pro fight. Um, so, Eric... In this podcast, we've been talking a lot about gauging ceilings for guys, um, guys like Ellis, guys like Munguia. Um, but even though it's early days, it kind of feels like the sky is almost the limit for Teofimo Lopez. How excited are you about him as a prospect and for this matchup? I'm definitely looking forward to this. It's a big step up for Lopez. Uh, Magdaleno is a world-class fighter, uh, although to be clear... He's the lesser of the two Magdaleno right. brothers. Jesse is a little better. But still, Diego can fight. It will make a statement if Lopez beats him convincingly, which I think he will. Uh, maybe not one of those one-round knockouts like he scored uh, a few of recently, but I suspect Lopez is the goods, so I do expect him to impress here. Yeah, yeah. He, um, yeah even though he is the less successful of the Magdalena brothers, I think he's a perfectly solid contender. Um, mm-hmm. The first time I saw Teofimo Lopez, by the way, he was fighting on a Terence Crawford undercard, and I think at Madison Square Garden. I think he was about 4-0 or something at that point. And this guy who's wearing a Teofimo Lopez hat, and who knew? I certainly didn't know that there were such things as Teofimo Lopez hats <laughs> at that point. Right. He comes up to me and he starts going on about how Lopez is the future of boxing. Right. He's like really in my face. Pretty. He's pretty intense about this. And uh, he's going to be bigger and better than Muhammad Ali. And I'm like, you know, whatevs. Right. Um, we hear these things, you know, mm-hmm. from. So I mention it to someone from Top Rank, and they go, Oh yeah, that's his dad. <laughs> so I think there might be a little bit of a touch of the Angel Garcia about about uh, Mr. Lopez Senior, at least in as much as his faith in his son is concerned. But yes, Teofimo Lopez, I think, is a very exciting prospect. Granted, I once said that Adrian Broner would be pound for pound number one, and I once compared Felix Vadejo to Sugar Ray Leonard. But that notwithstanding, I do think that Teofimo Lopez looks the business. All right. Well, yeah. and, and now now I know what the reward for winning our picks challenge has to be. It's uh, the the winner gets a nice brand new flat brimmed Tiafimo Lopez hat, which he gets to wear uh, to Radio Oof. Row and, and uh, Press Row and so forth going forward. Yeah. Well, there you go. I guess that could be a thing. Um, <laughs> All right. We'll keep brainstorming uh, we'll see, yeah. ideas. We'll okay. keep working on that. Yeah, yeah. We'll take that offline. All right. Um, that will do it, though, for this episode. Thanks again to Steve Farhood. And remember, you can see and hear him along with Barry Tompkins and Raul Marquez on Showbox, the new generation this Friday, February 1st at 10 p.m. We will be back next week to review that card and also to look ahead to the February 9th Showtime Championship Boxing event headlined by Javante Davis and Abner Morris. Until then, thanks for listening.